0: Welcome to First Thought, a podcast by Galway International Arts Festival. I'm Tiernan Henry, host of the festival's Vinyl Hours. Vinyl Hours is a series of conversations with music aficionados who take us on a musical journey through the soundtracks of their lives. We've had to edit out the songs here in order to release Vinyl Hours as a podcast, but you can listen to the guests' full playlists on Galway International Arts Festival's Spotify page. This episode was recorded in September 2020 in front of a socially distanced live audience at Galway's Rosheen Dove, our first guest was acclaimed conductor David Brophy, and it was a big one. Once we got talking about music, we couldn't stop, and we'll release our conversation with David as a two-part. Without further ado, enjoy Vinyl Hours with David Brophy. <laughs> So just before an introduction, just to tell us a little stuff. bit about what we do. Uh, Vinyl Lars is an excuse to listen to music and to talk about it. Uh, in previous years, guests have picked an album or uh, a, a CD or whatever it is that they've been really, really affected by in one way or another. And they've talked about that. But we decided to change it up this year a little bit. So this year, guests have been asked to select to put an album together if you want. So it's you know their album, their rationale, their choice of everything. Um, so this is David's album that we're going to be talking about and listening to. And then they have to come here. And they have to justify those choices. <laughs> <laughs> in front of a live audience and on tape on the internet for infinity. So no pressure, David. Okay. So it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for doing this.
1: Thanks, Tierney. Nice to be here.
0: Yeah. And what we do, I think what we might do is we might start with the first track. And I think that will just lead us. I think that will be, this is a a very complicated choral piece that goes on for about 40 minutes, I think. So David, um, this is a, a Mexican folk song. And um, how did a Mexican folk song become part of your vernacular in Santry? <laughs> uh,
1: well, I was, certainly wasn't part of the vernacular mm. in Santry in the yeah. north side of when I was growing up. But I, so I picked. I should probably exp- explain my my concept album.
0: Grant perfect. <laughs>
1: yes. That we're going to hear over the next hour or so um, is kind of chronological. Mm-hmm. So this piece of music reminds me of when I was about eleven. And I was forced to join a choir. I wasn't interested in music. There was no music in my house at home. Um, and uh, there was, my parents really, I wouldn't say they weren't musical, but you know, with some households, you always got music on. You can hear music mm. in the background or somebody play CDs, but there was nothing like that in my house. So we were at mass one Sunday and I was 11. And there was an announcement off the altar where the Greenfield singers were looking for new members. And my mother happened to say, "I think that fellow lives down the road from us. Who runs the choir? The music director, Kevin Scully. You should join the choir." And I had no more interest in joining the choir because I was completely interested in football. I just wanted to play football all day. That's what I did. Um, so I kind of felt forced into the choir. I was I was kicked into the choir. People are kicked out of choirs. I was kicked into a choir, and uh, and then joined the choir. And I kind of the first rehearsal was like they sang plain chant, Gregorian chant and things in German. I go, God, this is not for me. You know? um, So, but one of the songs we sang in the first rehearsal was this song, Serita Linda. And this caught my ear. And I kind of went, this is kind of nice, happy, sunny music. And this was a song, from the Sierra Morena, Cielito Lindo came for the dancing. I remember all the English words. That was obviously not in English. We didn't have a mariachi band like that on the, on the north side of Dublin. And um, so every time we hear that song, I think of the uh, kind of incongruity of me being in Santry yeah. <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the very, when the early to mid-1980s,
0: singing on a choir. Did that ledge into? If you didn't come from, if there wasn't music.
1: Eventually was a that would have. Towards, yeah. you
0: know, towards learning an instrument.
1: Eventually that would have led me into music, that choir. So I suppose, yeah, that choir, when I joined the choir I was 11 or 10 or 11 or something, yeah. that was probably the beginnings of me being
0: unleashed onto the world as a musician. And then, <laughs> you know, it's initially the voice, but then where did you find. Like, where, how did you find an instrument? A,
1: so a, I. for so Here's track. the thing I was like. I was. I was kind of pretty, you know. I had a pretty rough time in primary school, <laughs> and then things got even worse when I joined the choir. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: And then I took up the piano, so I was obviously completely gay, because that's like in like in the north side in the nineteen mid to 1980s, You are like if you played the piano and you are singing in a choir, you must be gay. So there's something wrong with you. And then my dad gave me, you know, the old music uh, bags with the steel bar that goes over the handle. I don't know why they're designed like that. If anyone can explain that to me, that'd be great. Uh, I presume it's the fact that manuscript is maybe a bit bigger than normal yeah. paper, I don't know. And uh, so my father insisted on giving me his sister's bag when she was learning music 40 years before that. So here I am, like I'm prime like bait the shite out of material because I'm, I'm going up to my lesson up in Ballymun Road. I went to a local piano teacher, Daniel Walsh, and I'm, I'm holding my, my auntie's, Colette Brophy's, music bag and i'm going to piano and i'm like this you know like i was definitely gay you know so i was really flagged the hell out of you know so um and so i went for piano lessons and i wanted to um i wanted to go to the accompanist for the choir mm-hmm. for piano lessons because loads of fellas in the choir were going to for piano lessons and my mother said no she was she there was no music in the house but she had wisdom about her so she, you're going to go to a qualified teacher. So she sent me to a qualified teacher called Daniel Walsh. But I didn't start the piano with him until I was 13, which is really late. And I wouldn't have been accepted to the College of Music at the time. Yeah. So I was a late comer to the piano and to music in general. And how did you find it
0: when you when you started?
1: I loved it. And Completely you... loved it. And escaped into it. Yeah. And practiced. It was like, I don't know, I kind of look back and it was kind of like, it was my safe place in a, in a, in a world that I felt was mad at the time. Yeah. Like there was I got the... Crap bait out of me in school a lot, <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> so like, and I thought that was everyone did. There was two two, two two types of people in the world. There were the people who did the beating up, and those who were beaten. That yeah, was it. And I just yeah, happened to be on that side, yeah. you know. Like, so that was my that was my kind of younger life. And then I came to music, and I loved it. And it was kind of a place. To, it was a place for me. I thought was a safe place, and it still is my safe place.
0: Is music to this day. Is that weird. How did you weird. find some other people? Did you find you found other people? Obviously within <sighs> that space. Uh,
1: I think. Yeah, I went through and as proper slagging when I started off the piano. And then when I hit 15 or 16, that's gonna come into our next piece now. Yeah. Uh, I suddenly went from being really nerdy and like, and I was scrawny, like really skinny, you know? So I was kind of easy to beat up. <laughs> uh, and then when I was 15, 16, suddenly there was bands being formed in school and my share price rocketed suddenly yeah. <laughs> because I could play keyboards, you yeah. know? Like so, so suddenly I'm going right now, I've gone kind of really, I'm not quite zero to hero. Yeah. But I was suddenly at 15, 16, when there was lads who were gonna form bands, they want somebody who could play stuff. And they, I, was the, I was the keyboard player in school. That was when I was in secondary school. So I ended up playing in the band called um, The Fifth Victim. <laughs> we were dreadful. We were so bad. And uh, I thought we were so bad.
0: We should probably play the next piece of music. That's going kind of on. Which up. you did play in Fifth Victim. This one. So the Water Boys.
1: So the Water Boys and Fisherman's, Fisherman's Blues. In particular, so Fisherman's Blues. We played that in The Fifth Victim and um, we used to do things like um, I'm not even sure this goes on. Now, we used to do battle of the bands like in school, and we would. Um, I remember clearly playing. We used to play in two pubs in town in Dublin, the Earl Grattan, mm-hmm. which was on Cable Street, kind of close to Liffey, and then we used to play on. We used to play in the old White Horse Inn, which I think is on Burke Hill, from the yeah. old Irish Press offices, and um, and they in the there was an upstairs lounge. You couldn't call it lounge, like it was like. <laughs> it was like the land the for forgot, like we rented, you know. And we were all, you know, we'd go on a like on a Saturday night in, and we were probably like 16, yeah. everybody utterly illegal. Mm. And uh, and we would play there'd be three bands, and we'd play Battle of the Bands. And um, I think one on one particular occasion, Christy Dignam judged right the Battle of the Bands. And I have this is a really weird recollection I have. Um, it was like uh, upstairs was like a Dive in the White Horse Inn, Mm. but you can imagine it looked right out of the Liffey. And at one stage, there was a a rat appeared in the in the lounge, and Christy was wearing a long, big, Gestapo full length, black, (laughs) like leather, (laughs) trench coat, like right down to his like his boots. And uh, and you can imagine there was a scatter, like you Mm. know, you can imagine a pile of sixteen guys, everything like screaming, like you know. Uh, And Christy went up and took the rat. I think by the tail and I opened the window and threw it out into the liffy like, you know, it's kind of
0: like... Rock and sick, roll, yeah. there you go. It
1: was utterly, <laughs> that's, that's the closest I have. That's, clo- that's the closest thing I have to a rock and roll story in yeah. my life, you know, like, and, uh, and, uh, but they were wild, they were c- utterly wild type of nights yeah. and we'd be all getting completely stocious yeah. on you know, a pint and a half, you know, yeah. and, uh, and, well, I played, we played Fisherman's Blues and I, you know, because we'd no fiddle player and there was no fiddle player in the school of the class, I played the fiddle solo to my utter shame to I dropped dead on a keyboard, Mm -hmm. on a kawaii keyboard, and all those little slides there I used to use. You know the old wheels that you and you're playing? You try (laughs) try and mimic the the violin style. It was so sad and pathetic and dreadful, you know? But every time we hear that song, uh, Fisherman's Blues, I I always think, I go, God, what did we do to crucify that song? We had a good singer. Our singer's name was was uh, lead singer's name was Mervin Minto, which is a great name for the actual lead singer. It's a really good and that was his real name. His real name was Mervin Minto. And he was their lead singer and he and he wrote a good song. He wrote a song called High Head Lady, which was actually a reasonably okay song, you know. But yeah, they were the they were that was the change it was my change. I realized, okay, music I'm not going to get my whole life slagged off for staying in music, you know, so...
0: And, like, when you were at that stage, were you still sort of doing your lessons? Yeah. Or, or, yeah.
1: No, I was utterly like, being classically trained, whatever the hell that is. But, I mean, I learned afterwards that, like, the majority of people in bands the best, most successful bands in the past 56, 70 years have all been, to some extent, classically trained at some yeah. stage, you know, they all have had proper lessons and they yeah. got technique and that, they got chops, you know so I was, you know, I was doing my you know, Bach two-part inventions mm-hmm. and then playing fisherman's blues and keyboard yeah. in, in the Earl or the...
0: So like at bar. sort of 16, 17, did you have an idea at that stage that music maybe would be, or we did you have any idea what you wanted to do? No, Tina, I really
1: didn't at all. I mean, I was I was so late to it. Like when I was doing my leaving cert, I was on about grade four or five piano, because I started when I was thirteen. Right. So no, I loved it. So I was no there's no way was I was going to do a career in music. Not a hope in hell. I was gonna go on to NCAD, National College of Art yeah. Design. I was gonna do design, probably furniture design. Mm-hmm. And I started preparing my portfolio. And I actually studied with Strangely, there was a portfolio preparation course in Ballymun Comprehensive up the right. road for me, and it was taken by, of all people, Patricia McKenna, ex Green MEP. Okay, right. She took that. Yeah. It was amazing. I met her, and she taught me the portfolio preparation course in Ballymun Comprehensive before she really got into politics. And um, so I was, it, I was doing this, and then my, I had a fantastic art teacher in school, mm-hmm. Nicholas Moran, and uh, I was in probably about like March, a few months before the leaving cert. And he was I was getting he was and he was looking at what I was doing and I was okay. Not fantastic though. And he says to me, like, Well, Dave, we were chatting and he said, What do you do when you go home? What's the first thing you do when you go home from school? And I said, the first thing I do is I went to the piano and practice. And he immediately said to me, Don't do art.
0: Uh-huh. He was so wise that yeah. man was. Um, I suppose it was the thing that you that you wanted to do first when you went into the house. He was Whereas, very
1: clever. He kind of said like you know, what what's what do you go yeah, what's your go-to what's thing, thing after yeah, what is, yeah, if, he said to me, then he said to me, if you're not going home taking out your dollar pad and doing a sketch yeah, of you yeah. know your Doc Martin or whatever yeah. your studies from different angles and different media and all that yeah. type of thing, and if you're not living at that on that level, you shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. And he was right, he was dead right. Mm. So I went on to my folks and said, um, our teacher said we're not. I'm not doing art anymore. We're not going to art and My folks had a uh, crisis. You know, two months for the leaving Sarah. He doesn't know yeah. what he's going to do now. And then my art teacher said, "Why don't you try music?" And so we had like uh, a proper summit with tea and sandwiches, and my piano teacher was called down to the house to have a conversation about mm. can this person do music? You know. And then my piano teacher uh, got a guy called an, a probably retired piano teacher from the college of music at the time called Finn O'Loughlin. Uh, he was a pretty well-known piano teacher in Dublin at the time. He came out. He would have been in his late 70s early 80s He came out to listen to me A, a month or two later or the mm. summer after my leaving yeah. and he kind of went yeah This kid can maybe do something. And I was
0: maybe grade five at that stage. Yeah, so and where did you need to be? Sorry where, like, I would, would, you you would need, need
1: a grade be? eight minimum okay. to go on yeah. and do something, yeah. you know, yeah, so I so, so the discussion was right take a year out practice like something possessed yeah and then see where we are after a year. Yeah. So I took a year out and did six hours a day. Yeah. Like something, like seriously possessed, highly disciplined, because uh, there is a side to me that is very, very kind of ainely disciplined. Uh, so nine o'clock in the morning, at the piano, go, practice till midday, take a break, and, and had the day mapped out. Mm. And at the end, I got my grade eight. I think I nearly got distinction or maybe got two marks structure at the end of that year. So now I'm in a position where I can possibly go on. But the problem was I hadn't done theory. So you can't do a degree in music without yeah. all the theory stuff and all the written stuff and how to do baccaras and all that. So I'd never done theory. So I took another year to do a diploma course, preparation course, and then got that and then did a degree. So I got into my degree when I was 19 and yeah. graduated 23. So I was a, bit, a year or two behind everybody else, but it was fine. You catch up.
0: And was it still like that year of six hours a day that didn't knock it out of you i would have done
1: 16 you... hours a day yeah
0: right yeah i would
1: have done i would have 24 hours a day not slept for a year. yeah yeah
0: loved it and then when you got into college then yeah how did you find that did you it
1: was really weird because um i had no concept of the music scene in dublin yeah like a lot of musicians you know, who want to be fresh musicians, their parents are potentially musicians, you know. I had no idea the scene, you know. So when I went into first year of my degree at the College of Music, uh, which was kind of Trinity and College of Music, yeah. between two places, um, I, I first of all realized I was one of two Northsiders out of 18. <laughs> okay. and I realized, OK, this is, I'm different to these people, yeah. you know. So there was an awful lot of people from Mads and Fox Rock mm-hmm. and that type of thing. And I'd never met people like that from my life. And I said, that's a completely different thing. Okay. Um, okay, But I love, I like having hated school. I always swore to my folks I would never go to college because I hated school Mm. so much. I hated school of vengeance. I actually kind of still hate school. I don't know what that is. Um, But when I went to college and realized, actually, college is different. I loved college. I was like something released into the city, you know? And then, of course, the socializing and the whole thing—I loved all of that. Yeah. So that was all fantastic. So life suddenly got really brilliant when I left school, and then all music happened, and it was great. Mm-hmm. And um, but I think I had like yeah, things happened. I should have played this as well. And thinking of songs, I didn't play. I That's think fine. Yeah,
0: next I... year we bring you back next. Year. <laughs> next year,
1: this, this. Yeah. Well, maybe I should say this. This, this gives you a measure type person yeah. I was. Um, I was in first year of my degree course when somebody from. Um, I think it was like FM 104 or something, mm. and this would have been
0: 1990.
1: Right. Uh, yeah. So I'm always well, was on diploma course. So yeah, Italian 90 was on, and uh, Dublin had gone crazy for mm-hmm. everything Italian. Yeah. I think FM 104 or, or FM or something. They were running. Um, a pasta-eating competition at 8 o'clock in the morning outside the Gresham Hotel on the island in O'Connor Street. Right. you know, And somebody was told in uh, uh, whatever the radio station was, go and find a tenor to sing O Sola Mio. Yeah. And I had started singing in the DIT Chamber Choir, or the mm. Chamber Choir at the time. So they just happened to come in at the porter's desk. Brian, the fantastic Brian, who's the porter in, Chath- in Chatham Row, the College of Music, she came in and says, yeah, we're looking for someone to sing tenor, you know, and Brian he was wanting Jeffy had a hearing aid on that was never switched on properly. He couldn't hear half things, you know. And he was kind of just saying, he just turned to me. I happened to be walking by. Hey, David, you you sing, don't you? You sing tenor. Yeah, I've seen you in the choir singing. Don't you sing tenor? I went, yeah, I sing tenor. This one was looking for something, somebody to sing a song. Will you sing it for? <laughs> and I was just going, I was out, let, let out of school like a lunatic, madhead head, and we I go, yeah, Grand, you know. So I was booked by, I think it was 98, 98 FM, to sing live on o- O'Connell Street, O Sole Mio, with a flautist and a cellist who were in College with Me, while people, Dubliners, were stuffing their faces full of endless amounts of pasta, outside the Gresham Hotel, with the traffic on by at eight o'clock on a Friday morning, and it was a beautiful memory, and they paid me thirty quid. And I just yep. come it on. and I do. I was hammering it up and having the crack. Yeah. I'm gone. Yeah, okay. If I can do some of this madness, maybe I can go and have a career in music potentially. You know, so that kind of says a little bit about the type of person I was yeah. as a
0: student. You know, so. And then in college, did you, you? You've seen you were still singing, but you were playing piano. Was. <laughs> And did you have a sort of sense that what would how where would you go next or how would you get to the next bit? Or was that still you just got into college well, and you were just released into that? Yeah, I was
1: yeah, just released of having the crack yeah. and making music. But here's a few things happened. When I was with the Greenfield singers, when I was I think that they, they called me choir lead or the music director mm. put me choir leader when I was 15 or something. And I used to take rehearsals as a 15, 16-year-old. Mm. If he wasn't there I'd take sectionals, he would work with the outside, so work with sopranos, you know. So I was kind of doing some directing. Yeah. Like really off the cuff, yeah. like makeups I went along when I was 15 or 16 in the choir. So I kind of knew I was interested in maybe a bit of conducting. You know, that type of thing appealed to me. And my folks, even though there's no music, they brought me to music for fun in what would have been, at the time, kind of pretty newly opened National Concert Hall. Yeah. Wouldn't it be, I think, the 85 was the concert yeah. hall was open or something like that. So so that would have been, like, the RT concert artist with Gareth Hudson, and we had never been to... and They brought us to that on a Sunday at 3 o'clock, you know. So I kind of went, oh, this looks interesting. This sounds good, you know. like So I kind of had a sense of what was going on.
0: Yeah.
1: And also, at that stage, the concert hall... Like, this is probably in the late 1980s, maybe 1988, 87, 88. Our choir, the Greenfield Singers, got a gig in the concert hall, got a spot to sing three songs at a kind of a show or something at the concert hall, and I ended up being the pianist, having no right to be there, frankly. (laughs) But I managed to learn the few tunes to play. So I played in the concert hall when I was playing the piano after two or three years or something, and I'm sure it was dreadful. so I, but I had a flavour for what the world mm-hmm. that word could be, I suppose, you know. Um, and then in college, though, uh, that was one thing. Another thing that happened in college that I was kind of asked to step in and conduct things and do bits and bobs. And my dad always said to me when I was younger, when I was like, there would have been arguments. I like, was in every house, like, have you done your practice? Have you you haven't done your practice today? Did you practice yesterday? If you don't practice, we're stopping the piano lessons, and I'm going to practice. You know. Yeah. And then my dad would kind of say, he knew my dad worked in the SBE, and he had a fellow in work who worked as an electrician, but in the evening played pianos and bars and mm-hmm. like background music, you know. And my dad says, if you learn to play the piano, you'll never be short of money. And that kind of stuck in me. I don't know why okay. that stuck at yeah. me, you know. And actually, so through college, my, when I went to first year, I started working. I started playing for choirs. So Monday night, I did Aer Lingus Musical Society. Tuesday night was the College of Music Choral Society. Wednesday night was Trinity Chorus Society, played for them. Thursday night was. Something other choir, Ulysses choir or something like that. <laughs> Friday night I used to go to the symphony orchestra.
0: Yeah.
1: And Saturday night just go drinking. And that was my week. Mm-hmm. But I meant on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, I was earning like maybe 40 quid or yeah. 50 quid or something for playing at a rehearsal or taking a rehearsal being like you know. So I actually was earning money, others in college.
0: And but playing with people but, as well.
1: But playing with people yeah. Yeah. and playing and but like kind of like really catching up, pedaling fast, working really hard catching up to try and be close to the, my peers who were all, had been grounded in piano playing yeah. since the they age of six, it, you yeah, know, like, yeah, and they come yeah. from it, and I was catching up, so. But I reckoned if I kept my wits about me, I could, i keep my head above
0: water. We might, we'll just play a little bit of this next one. Okay. It, and it's, I suppose it's the first of the big beasts. Play the big beast. Uh, just, it's interesting what you said there, just, I, I don't know if people caught up on that, but when it started playing, David said it's slow. And it, this is a question. As a non-classical music person, when I when I think, about when, when you guys interact with music, is it all on the page, or is there room within what's on the page? Uh, uh, we have to, and have particularly a... if it's say something like Beethoven.
1: It's a great question, but we'd have to. I'd have to leave and come back and start the whole thing again because <laughs> we would take an hour and a half to get this one sorted. Yeah, we don't know. Music notation is not a perfect thing hmm. so that's the beginning that's the opening of Beethoven's Pathetique Piano Sonata uh, number 13 uh, which oh, oh god who was that written maybe uh, maybe early 1790s something like that yeah. uh, early 1790s it, yeah. it doesn't matter yes. uh, he was, so was in, young as well he was he young he was it. in his yeah. maybe yeah. early 20s yeah. uh, mid 20s mm-hmm. and uh, he hadn't started going deaf at the stage but um, so yeah we, we don't know I mean like I'm going to conduct I'm with the NSO next yeah. week conducting Beethoven's fourth symphony yeah so I'm studying Beethoven's Fourth Symphony, and I haven't conducted it in 20 years now at this stage. It's been a while. So I'm doing research, and I'm reading books, and I'm reading Beethoven's letters, and I'm looking at the music. And, and eventually, when I kind of feel I know the music, I will listen to some recordings. And the differences in the recordings mm. are huge. Now maybe some people may listen to recordings, and they sound the same to me. But the tempo, the, the speed can be huge. That opening is marked grave, which is very slow. But I wouldn't play it that slow. That feels too slow yeah. to me. You know yeah. what I mean? So, uh, so the reason I picked this piece was because uh, there was kind of like I don't say there was conflict in my eyes, but my folks. I keep saying it. They weren't musicians. But my dad's mother played the piano apparently. Um, mm. But I had I was playing this piece when I was probably seventeen. Even though I wasn't really able for it, I had a great piano teacher who was let me kind of let me lose on stuff. Uh, and that opening C minor chord, which is kind of a low, thick chord, like if you play the piano with C, E flat, G, C, then E flat, G and C, and the notes are all packed together really low. Mozart would never have written that chord. Mm. Hyde would never have written, written that chord. Beethoven wrote that chord because you got a new piano made by a company called Broadwood. And the Broadwood piano was the first reinforced steel frame piano that ever existed. Up until then, p- piano frames are made with wood. And so you couldn't tighten the strings as tightly. This was a steel frame, the first steel frame piano, so you could tighten the strings tighter and get a bigger, thicker yeah. sound. So he exploited that with that first chord. Mm. That was the first chord he wanted to play. And I kind of go, yeah,
0: <laughs> I like it. But like it this, sounds like you're sinking into it all. You're sinking into it. Baton it's baton like,
1: you know, it's like the it was the bass guitarist of the Sex Pistols was the first guitarist to play four note chords in the bass guitar. Right. I think, was that right? Somebody knows that somewhere. Paul, you might know that. Uh, that, yeah, I think the bass guitarist for Sex Pistols was the first guy. You know bass guitarist playing mm. one line. He was only going to play four notes yeah. together on chords of the bass guitar. So that's a bit like what Beethoven did. <laughs> <laughs> Except uh, maybe 150 years earlier. So I don't know. <laughs> um, so I was obsessed with this piece. But So the, in our house, we kind of grew up in a small house, but at the back, at the back back room, there was a back room in the front room and my dad watched the television in the front room. In the back room, there was sliding doors and the piano was there. And I would play the (sighs) pathetique. Soft. (laughs) Loud. And I just on a different planet yeah. in the music space just nowhere near Santry or anywhere else, you know And my dad would be trying to watch the news <laughs> My dad would say dad! He'd be shouting the next time Stop using the loud pedal <laughs> Stop using the loud, there's no loud pedal I'm, I'm at the piano going there's no loud pedal on the piano There's no loud piano pedal on the piano There is the, the one that's on the right he would say stop using it it makes it louder he was trying to watch the news you know um this went on all the time it was a constant thing you know so i saw so the nine would come so i'd have to stop and he Use the soft pedal and i'd be i'd be in a huff then so i'd go in i'd sit down for the news like this like i want to play the piano you know bloody news and you know and he was like really my dad was reading the television you know so and then so there was a soft pedal on it which brought and the, the piano I had, there's different types of soft pedal, but there's a soft pedal where you can bring a line of felt between the hammer and the string that makes it soft. A lot of soft pedals just move the hammer close to the string, you know. So that made, when you played the first chord of the Pathétique, that one there, you would go, but you'd get. That's you the sound you'd get, and you kind of go, this is crap. I can't, I can't do this, isn't that what he wrote, you know. Yeah. So this conflict happened all the time, you know, like, and so... Now I think, uh, I think now my folks are kind of slightly we're sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit like, you know that stuff, we could have done it yeah. the news. Yeah. Like, nah. yeah, a little yeah. bit, we could it would have been all right. The piano's uh, still there. The piano is now, that same piano is in my, uh, my, uh, my dad's sister's house, my aunt's house, my Auntie right. Margaret, she lives in right. yes. She bought the piano. Uh, when her husband died, she wanted to do something. And she bought the piano off us. I mean, probably getting yeah. the piano off from us. Well, I, I, that's I'd moved out. And then I gave her lessons. Well, I gave my aunt piano lessons, probably when I was in my thirties or something, you know? And uh, so, but that, every time I think, every time I hear that chord, I expect my father to shout at me. So wherever I am in the world, and I hear that, you know, I hear that chord, I go, oh, the news! <laughs> Keep it down, don't use the loud pedal. The, don't use the loud pedal. There's no loud pedal the piano. So that's that piece.
0: Which takes us then to your next piece, which is another of the beasts.
1: Yeah. So, so how do I explain this one? Right. Okay. So I spent most of my life and I kind of think even now, I don't think my parents have any idea kind of who I am. They think I'm a bit like, like my father would say kind of jest, probably to my mother, where the hell did we get him from? There was a bit of that going on. I would say a little bit of that, you know. So I I, I obviously, was obviously for piano training, there was like classical music there. But we, there was never classical. There was one There was a Beethoven 5 vinyl mm. in the house that my dad bought because he liked the first. Dun, 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 dun. Mm. He liked that. And he saw it, Like, you know the way you used to see these things after Christmas, where you'd get, you'd have a like, this, all the series would come out. You'd have 12 episodes or nine episodes, all the Beethoven <laughs> symphonies once a week, really you know, like cheap, every yeah. week you yeah. get a symphony at a time and there'd be a big book and you'd learn all about mm. it. My dad was going to get into classical music and he bought the fifth and didn't buy any more mm. and didn't really play it. So I played it like when I was younger and went, what's this? And put it down, mm, that's interesting, you know. But the first ever recording I ever bought when I was 17 and I'd left school and I was starting mm. to kind of do piano every day yeah. and I said apparently listen to stuff you know I bought a recording of the four seasons and it was just a year or two before Nigel Kennedy's seminal recording yeah. of the four seasons and it was with the English Baroque soloist I think and Kenneth Silito, I think it was the fiddle player and I played it on our like deck which was like something out of you know NASA or something like a big huge thing like a big machine to play a little small tape <laughs> but I put in headphones and listen to it and I'd listen to it like late at night and kind of go right I like this shit, I think this is good. I really like this stuff, I get it, you know. I This spoke to me, mm. you know. So I listened to the four seasons until the tape was mangled in the machine and I'd be spooning it back trying to fix it and play it again and you know the you know the tape would get mangled yeah, in the yeah. machine for those of you who are old enough. <laughs> Do you remember that? You get your pencil. You take the pencil pencil, and turn (laughs) it it around. But then you used to then, you say, well, if I play it again, it's going to get caught again. So I'd rewind it and fast forward it, rewind it and fast forward (laughs) to smooth over the bit that went mangled. You know what I mean? And then play it again and get it going again. You know, (laughs) madness. You know, Uh, my kids don't understand. I have no concept of that Mm. now, you know. And um, so this was the first piece of classical music that really said right. And it was the first orchestral piece I'd ever listened to. That made Mm, an impact on me, that hit me, that definitely hit me, yeah.
0: It's It's worth playing the whole
1: thing. Yeah, and it's like, but there's, I mean, I listen to it now, and there's still so much stuff in that. The way the music's written Mm. is so similar to stuff I was playing in bands and rap music. I mean, it's very hard to, you know, if you take away the fact it's on string orchestra and you've got plugging guitars and that, but I've, whatever my head, the way my head works i just hear that in the same world as everything else
0: because yeah, the me- but the melodies are so strong there's, and i think that's the oh, key thing isn't and it?
1: it was also the thing like that was a concept album Yeah. you know yeah. that was that's programmatic music that was an early concept album you
0: know and he wrote um poems to go with them uh, there was you?
1: there was te- there's, there's, t- if you look at the original manuscript yeah. there's text underneath it yeah. so um there's a part of spring the slow movement of spring has sheep kind of on the hills morning and then there's a dog barking right in the violas bam bam and it's marked really loud and i mean I've, i did it with the symphony orchestra i think last year sometime mm-hmm. and i said to the violas, you're barking you're barking like play much louder and you actually have to persuade class musicians to go further you know and it's, it's so clever you know it's such clever music it really is clever music
0: and is that one of the roles then of a conductor is to to pull and push them annoy or them. lead them or annoy them. Annoy them.
1: yeah <laughs> and make them yeah i don't know. I, I don't i know nothing about conducting i know why I, I know <laughs> yeah. yeah seriously i know how i do it yeah but the actual thing like what is conducting who really knows what that is it's, it's such an enigmatic thing and it's like i'll you know it's one of those lifelong learning things mm. you know and i kind of go with like John Elliott Garden, a famous English conductor, said that if you're, if you're a conductor, like if you're, if you're very, very young and you're very, very old, you're okay. Because the band would do it. They'll mind you. you know, yeah. <laughs> if you're anywhere in between, you're completely lost.
0: You're on your own. So
1: I'm right in the middle of that now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, uh, so maybe like when I get to my 80s, suddenly <laughs> the, the clouds will all disappear and I'll go, yeah. ah, this is how you do it. And then I'll ring you, Tiernan, and say, This is how I it, goes. So it no, Remember that question you asked me in Galway during yeah. the COVID pandemic? Yeah, I worked it out. This is what the conductor does. Yeah. And I did, And there's a side to me, you, know, you, you keep learning every year, every few months, like you get something new. You learn something. Okay, that's a bit better than if I do it that way, you know? And then you kind of go, sometimes I go, maybe I'm getting better at this. Then I get scared and I go, No, I don't want to know how it works. The whole idea is that it's enigmatic and I'm chasing it forever, you know? So it's always that kind of balance between knowing. And then I spend, I, I'm at the age now, where I'm trying to unlearn yeah. all the things I've learned because I'm now trying to become a child again.
0: Yeah. Do you, do you still true. watch other conductors
1: though? Yeah, and I'm probably one of the few conductors who does that I think a lot of conductors, I don't know, if somebody asked me last week, how are other conductors faring mm. in mean, COVID-19? Yeah. Yeah. And I say, well, no one, the last person you asked a conductor, Condu- conductors never hang out together, yeah. ever. <laughs> like, they run a mile. Like, if the conductor walked in here, I'm pre-programmed to run out that door straight away and jump into the river, like, you know? Uh, so I'm not, like, so that, and that's a weird thing. Conductors are always kind of, I've never had many any conductors, but I know when you approach a conductor and talk to another conductor, most of the time I get tension. No, I'm kind of, Why are you tense? I'm just here. Yeah. You're, I'm not going to take your job. Don't worry. Yet. <laughs> so there's a tension thing. So it's kind of hard. It's hard for... And also conducting teaching. I teach conducting now. Is really difficult. It's, it's like the manuals don't exist really, you know? And it's such a... Even
0: if you can't define it, how do you... You know, if you can't. It's like
1: teaching composition. You know yeah. what I mean? It's very hard to teach composition. It's yeah. very hard to write teach people how to write songs. It's very yeah. hard to teach people to conduct as well, you know? But there are some obviously guiding principles, you know? I don't, the principles change for me now. It has to be fun. <laughs> mm. I'm at that point. I wasn't there 10 years ago. Yeah. I was kind of, well, we got to pay it properly. Now I'm kind of going, let's make the odd mistake. But trying to find something that's more human, you know? And it's like, I think conductors, they kind of reflect what stage in their lives they're at potentially, you know what I mean? So, young conductors are kind of intense and they want to get things right and they're driven about mm. trying to get things out. And that, that was me. And then you realize, God, I'm not making a nice sound from the band. I'm stressing them out. So how do I make the band, make a, the orchestra, I call it band, make the, make the orchestra make a nice sound? Well, if I do, <coughs> the string players might go, <coughs> and that's not a nice sound, yeah. you know? So maybe I should just relax this a bit more and free it up a little bit more. If you free it up then, the players go, well, where's the beat? <laughs> so, yeah. like, okay, yeah. so you go, all right, so how do you work that one? I don't know, it needs to be defined, but not defined.
0: And but then obviously you know, it's, a it's, well, it, oh, it's a trust as well, because it's a trust between you and the players. Trust,
1: then. fear, so much fear. Everyone's afraid of making a mistake. No, yeah, you're playing in, among all your peers. Yeah. So if somebody makes a mistake, you kind of go, oh, <laughs> you made a mistake. <laughs> There's that going on. Like little small things, you wouldn't mm. hear them in the audience necessarily, mm. you know. And then if I make a mistake, then the, I'm lucky because the band generally covers it up. Yeah. Because I'm not, you, if I, no one hears my mistake, yeah, sometimes you will. Mm-hmm. And then there are times when you get, like, when you work with orchestras that are maybe tricky customers in the orchestra, I would purposely start making mistakes. Oh, you know, it does get eventually quite kind of Machiavellian after a while, like, you know, where there's the dark arts about it, you know. Uh, And I've been in front of orchestras where they're just not doing it. So I start, like, if I'm beating four Mm. and as a bass pizzicato, I'll put the downbeat a bit early on purpose. Mm. And... And then I'll go, it's not, so you'll hear one, two, three, four, one. I'll do it earlier than yeah. it should be. Yeah. And some of the bass will play with me and some will play where it should the, be. the, con, the con, You know, yeah. and I'll yeah. go... And have a go, and then that'll make them really cheesed off. They'll be gone, Jesus. And then, but then I sometimes I do that to try and build a better way of working. Yeah. So I have, sometimes you, you get in front of an orchestra. It's like a it's like speed dating when an auction you don't know. Now, obviously, I know the concert auction and symphony auction here mm. well. So we've gone beyond that. We kind of hopefully have a mature <laughs> relationship now. Uh, but when you go to an auction for the first time, and they make their mind up about what you're like before you even pick up the sticks and yeah. what do you know. And they go yes or no, and they say decide they're not going to play for you, or they say I do going to play for you? You know, so you got to work. Sometimes when things are not going great, I'll do, I'll kind of destruct the whole way we're doing things. I'll make it worse, and then I will start rebuilding again. Yeah. And they, some of the players that obviously kills the band, but then you try and build it back up again. Hopefully before the concert, it's weird. It's conducting and, is the and, weirdest thing. And
0: what kind of timeline would this be on? You know, like if three you, days, right? Just like eight, ten hours a day for three days
1: say the most they do is six hours a day we yeah. do two three hour sessions okay. uh, now this week with the symphony orchestra we've got 11 to 3 on Tuesday Wednesday Thursday and then we have a two hour session on the Friday for cameras and then we do, we go yeah. stream live yeah. at 7 o'clock yeah. night. so that's kind of short, long is short if you know in the middle of it but uh, I was in Argentina last year uh, about 16 months ago working in Teatro Colón mm. in Buenos Aires and um, there for six weeks fantastic time but well, so because it's opera, I was doing Andre Previn's opera from A Streetcar Named Desire, great opera, which I conducted in Dublin mm-hmm. 15 years ago. And um, uh, so I've got, with the orchestra, I've got probably two weeks of them before the opening night because it's so complex. So then it can form relationships. I learn all the names. Yeah. So I know that the principal bassoon player in Argentina is Ezekiel. I know, I know his name. And uh, there's a few of I i not remember. I'd probably cut them all. But I know them all, and I say their name, and we become kind mm. of... Friends, one of the flute players in Argentina, he asked me over for dinner. I was only there three days, you know. And so you, sometimes you get orchestras, and it's great. But then you work with other. I worked with Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra. They were a hell. They were a hell. And I kind of told them, I really like. Yeah, this is maybe I shouldn't say this.
0: <laughs> don't, don't worry, it's not being recorded.
1: Don't worry, it's not being recorded. It's not going to end up online, you know. Uh, Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh were difficult. Mm. Yeah, and they, but they kind of. There was a problem with that band at the time, and they took it out on me. Yeah. I was there with, with other mus- Irish musicians. Some traditional musicians were there who got roundly abused by the orchestra, yeah. like really badly. Not good. So uh, they were tricky. I did things in that rehearsal that I'll never do again, uh, like putting the stick down and not conducting anymore. <laughs> I'm just standing <down> there. Yep. <laughs> You're all laughing because you're nervous. Because that little bit of silence we had for five seconds yeah. is like, well, what's he going to do now? Nothing. <laughs> you know, just... straight, nothing. And I just realized that sometimes the only way to the greatest indication of power is when you put the stick down. Yeah. When you put the stick down, now, go, go and I turned around at one stage I said, go ahead and play, go on. They hate that. <laughs> oh, they didn't like that. But I'd had enough. Mm-hmm. And it, you, sometimes you go to an orchestra for the first time and Pittsburgh are a world-renowned orchestra. They've won 32 Grammys. They are won the top orchestra on the planet. But they didn't play well. Like, this is really weird. Like, I... So I have Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra recordings at home. I'm a fan that I'm getting to conduct the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra. Wow! Like, that's amazing. Imagine me going yeah. to conduct the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra. So I go and I'm doing my bit of rehearsal and within 10 minutes, I'm listening to what they're doing and I'm going, the concert orchestra sound better than this. In Dublin, mm-hmm. they do. So I know they sound better than this. String players doing this slow vibrato. Wah, 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 wah. Don't play vibrato like that. Make sound, you know. Mm. So I've got options. I'm, you know, there's, there's the outward David Brophy, who's conducting the rehearsal, saying everything's going on. And then the inside David Brophy, who's working out what his next move's going to be, and how, how his life is going <laughs> at that time, you know. So I'm saying to myself, right, this is not very good. They're not playing very well. So what do I do? Well, you have to call it. Mm-hmm. I could be nice and do the whole nice thing, and maybe they might ask me back. Woo! Or else they're going to say, I can decide now, I don't want to come back here. So I decided 50 minutes of the rehearsal, but I'm going to be straight with them. I don't want to come back. Yeah So I went straight in, and they hated it. I said to the strings, strings now, we're going to go back again this year, and they were playing really easy stuff, like just long bows, like something I don't know what the music was. And you're going to use quicker vibrato. It's going to be not as wide as you're playing, it's going to be narrower, and we're all going to do it. And then at the very tip of the bow, you're going to work the tip of the bow, so you make a good connection. I was trying to make them make a good sound. Uh, Because they were kind of making a farty sound, it wasn't a great sound, you know. And, uh, well, there was people turning around, and somebody said, I can hear, that's what these ears are for. (laughs) I can hear things that are said. Somebody said, what's he? Is he telling us how to use vibrato? And um, there was a tension then, and so they don't like this. Mm. And I was getting really bad looks and all sorts of stuff. And then the principal horn player in the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra, his name was Bill at the time, I remember him very well. Big guy, big Bill, 30 stone, scrawny Dave, nine and a half stone, okay? And he plays, he was a fantastic horn player, huge big sound. But when he played the top end of his register, he was sharp. Out of tune, slightly mm-hmm. out of tune. And I just, I'd had a kind of an air of this. And I said, oh, I can't take much more of this. I've got to tell him. So I said, Bill, you see that high G? That's sharp against the piano down here. Can you bring it? And as I was talking, I could see the two oboe players in front of me looking at each other going, he's telling your man to play in tune. Apparently, no one does that. Yeah. <laughs> so they had a kind of swagger about themselves, where they kind of, obviously, there's a, there's a power play between the conductor and the orchestra, always they want to control stuff Um, but they want it to be good but they want to control it but they can't control it because there's too many of them somebody has to make a decision Mm. I'm the one who makes a decision Um, so Bill brought it down but there was a kind of there was an atmosphere in Pittsburgh and at the break at the coffee break in the the session I was walking along a corridor in the Heinz Hall and the principal clarinet player who was in his early 60s i think he had a couple of years left he came up to me and he walked up to me in the corridor, and he kind of went, he, he kind of looked around him, and he said to me, a lot of us like you. And he walked off. <laughs> but it was like, you know, it was kind of like, I know you're getting, you're getting dogs abused from the band, yeah. but you're getting it from about 20%. But the rest of us actually like what you're at. Yeah. But he couldn't say it out loud. So it was a culture of fear in that band, mm. which you get in some orchestras, you know? So you're kind of juggling all that, and trying to make music. <sighs> Uh, it's ridiculous profession. Now, I love it. I wouldn't do anything else. I do really enjoy it. But there's times you kind of go, is this really what conducting is? You can't, you can't teach that stuff as well no. as the last
0: thing. And, but, but also, I suppose, well, the, the thing that I'm curious about as well is that how, how how do you juggle all of that so that you're saying you're you're, you're sharp at the top there against this piano and that vibrato is not working? So how... So, I mean, do you have the music in your head before you hear them play it? Like, have Ooh, you constructed? Great in
1: question. Now now they re- were into the middle of it now, we're <laughs> right in the middle of the topic now. Yeah. So, every time I conduct, I'm playing the music twice. This right. is really messed up now. Yeah. So next Friday, when I'm in front of the NSO doing Beethoven's Fourth Symphony, I will play Beethoven's Fourth Symphony about a bar ahead of the symphony orchestra. I'm hearing it in my head. Yeah. I'm knowing what gesture I need to get the sound of just heard that I'm going to get the sound of reality yeah. in two seconds' time.
0: Yeah.
1: So I've heard, okay, I want the bass to go dun dum dun. And I'm hearing that. And then they're going to play it in three beats time. And I go, okay, I need that gesture. It needs to be like this mm. or this or whatever. So I hear it before I Conduct it, and then I play it. I hear it. Then in reality, after I've heard it in my head, but you're and I compare the next. two, yeah. and they should match. Yeah. So the frustrating thing is that they've never ever matched in my life, yeah. and that's why I keep going. yeah So that's the best way I can explain it. And I think, like, I, yeah, I think that if, if it ever matches, I'm going to give up
0: yeah.
1: because it's kind of one of those things, you know. Like, and um, and then sometimes it matches, and I go, "This is great. I have it last after like." 25, 30 yeah. years conducting professionally, I have it at last, yeah. and it's gone. And then it, goes, gone, it little, just goes little, again, you know? Yeah, and I yeah. kind of think it's like, I don't know what I, like I've never, I love horse racing, and I, I but I, I've listened to interviews with jockeys, and you talk about, you listen to like, let's say Mick Canaan, uh, he, he'd be on a horse, and he'd kind of feel the horse under him on a particular day. Hmm. And you kind of go, oh, the horse just really wants to go. So you hold on to the horse and you hold on to it. And then you let the horse go. Or else sometimes the horse is sluggish and you have to work. You know, sometimes orchestras are like that. Sometimes you start the symphony and it just, whatever way the energy is, whatever they've all had, the clarinets just had green tea. And the basses had chocolate truffles for the dinner before then. And somebody had a Mars bar and the violins. And all the planets aligned and they've got a collective energy that is... I obviously take certain amount of credit for it. as <laughs> <It's laughs> well. But they were collecting energy. They produce something that I kind of go, "This is amazing." And I say to myself, "Brother, right, don't get in the way."
0: Yeah.
1: They've got something there yeah. that's better than me. Yeah. And then it's time they're going to go, "Oh Jesus, what's that? Oh, that's not together. oh they're a bit sleepy. Yeah. Or oh, they're not in the zone. Where are they? What are you guys doing over here?" And you kind of go, oh, "You've got to start working hard," you know. Yeah. Um, so, and it's you never know. It's, yeah. it's I love it. It's bonkers. <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening to Final Arts with David Brophy. Part one here on Galway International Arts Festival's First Thought podcast. See you right here on First Thoughts for part two.